Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me. Tonight's author is Willa Cather, born in Gore, Virginia in 1873. When she was nine, the family moved to Nebraska, partly to escape the rampant outbreaks of tuberculosis in Virginia. Nebraska was still the western frontier, and there her family encountered the culture of Native Americans and Europeans from many countries. Willa was deeply moved by the experience of the environment, the extremes of weather, and the sheer vastness of the Nebraska prairie. Later, she would have one of her fictional characters in her novel My Antonia observe that the Nebraska frontier was a place where there was nothing but land, not a country at all, but the materials out of which countries were made. Between that earth and that sky, I felt erased, blotted out. Young Willa Cather was an avid reader and an interested observer of the people around her. She used to accompany the local medical doctor on his rounds, and she wanted to become a physician. Her gifts as a writer, however, soon revealed themselves. While at the University of Nebraska, she became a regular contributor to the Nebraska State Journal. She also became the managing editor of the university's student newspaper. She changed her major and graduated with a degree in English in 1894. Moving to Pittsburgh, she became a magazine contributor and served as drama critic for the Pittsburgh Leader. She also published poetry and short stories. She would go on to achieve great success and celebrity as the author of her three novels set on the prairie, O Pioneers, 1913, The Song of the Lark, 1915, and My Antonia, 1918. Our story tonight comes from her first collection, The Troll Garden, published in 1905. The Garden Lodge by Willa Cather When Caroline Noble's friends learned that Raymond Descare was to spend a month at her place on the Sound before he sailed to fill his engagement for the London opera season, they considered it another striking instance of the perversity of things. That month was May, and the most mild and fluorescent of all the blue-and-white Mays the Middle Coast had known in years only added to their sense of wrong. Descare, they learned, was ensconced in the lodge in the apple orchard just beyond Caroline's glorious garden, and report went that at almost any hour the sound of the tenor's voice and of Caroline's crashing accompaniment could be heard floating through the open windows out among the snowy apple boughs. The sound, steel blue and dotted with white sails, was splendidly seen from the windows of the lodge. The garden to the left and the orchard to the right had never been so riotous with spring, and had burst into impassioned bloom as if to accommodate Caroline, though she was certainly the last woman to whom the witchery of Freya could be attributed, the last woman, as her friends affirmed, to at all adequately appreciate and make the most of such a setting for the great tenor. Of course, they admitted, Caroline was musical—well, she ought to be— but in that, as in everything, she was paramountly cool-headed, slow of impulse, and disgustingly practical. In that, as in everything else, she had herself so provokingly well in hand. Of course it would be she, always mistress of herself in any situation, she who would never be lifted one inch from the ground by it, and who would go on superintending her gardeners and workmen as usual, it would be she who got him. Perhaps some of them suspected that this was exactly why she did get him, and it but nettled them the more. Caroline's coolness, her capableness, 
her general success especially exasperated people because they felt that, for the most part, she had made herself what she was, that she had cold-bloodedly set about complying with the demands of life and making her position comfortable and masterful. That was why, everyone said, she had married Howard Noble. Women who did not get through life so well as Caroline, who could not make such good terms either with fortune or their husbands, who did not find their health so unfailingly good, or hold their looks so well, or manage their children so easily, or give such distinction to all they did, were fond of stamping Caroline as a materialist and calling her hard. The impression of cold calculation, of having a definite policy which Caroline gave, was far from a false one. But there was this to be said for her, that there were extenuating circumstances which her friends could not know. If Caroline held determinately to the middle course, if she was apt to regard with distrust everything which inclined toward extravagance, it was not because she was unacquainted with other standards than her own, or had never seen another side of life. She had grown up in Brooklyn, in a shabby little house under the vacillating administration of her father, a music-teacher who usually neglected his duties to write orchestral compositions for which the world seemed to have no especial need. His spirit was warped by bitter vindictiveness and puerile self-commiseration, and he spent his days in scorn of the labor that brought him bread, and in pitiful devotion to the labor that brought him only disappointment, writing interminable scores which demanded of the orchestra everything under heaven except melody." It was not a cheerful home for a girl to grow up in. The mother, who idolized her husband as the music lord of the future, was left to a lifelong battle of broom and dustpan, to never-ending conciliatory overtures to the butcher and grocer, to the making of her own gowns and of Caroline's, and to the delicate task of mollifying Auguste's neglected pupils. The son, Heinrich, a painter, Caroline's only brother, had inherited all his father's vindictive sensitiveness without his capacity for slavish application. His little studio on the third floor had been much frequented by young men as unsuccessful as himself, who met there to give themselves over to contemptuous derision of this or that artist whose industry and stupidity had won him recognition. Heinrich, when he worked at all, did newspaper sketches at twenty-five dollars a week, he was too indolent and vacillating to set himself seriously to his art, too irascible and poignantly self-conscious to make a living, too much addicted to lying late in bed, to the incontinent reading of poetry, and to the use of chloral to be anything very positive except painful. At twenty-six he shot himself in a frenzy, and the whole wretched affair had effectually shattered his mother's health and brought on the decline of which she died." Caroline had been fond of him, but she felt a certain relief when he no longer wandered about the little house, commenting ironically upon its shabbiness, a Turkish cap on his head, and a cigarette hanging from between his long, tremulous fingers. After her mother's death, Caroline assumed the management of that bankrupt establishment. The funeral expenses were unpaid, and Auguste's pupils had been frightened away by the shock of successive disasters and the general atmosphere of wretchedness that pervaded the house. Auguste himself was writing a symphonic poem, Icarus, dedicated to the memory of his son. Caroline was barely twenty 
when she was called upon to face this tangle of difficulties, but she reviewed the situation candidly. The house had served its time as the shrine of idealism. Vague, distressing, unsatisfied yearnings had brought it low enough. Her mother, thirty years before, had eloped and left Germany with her music teacher to give herself over to lifelong drudging bondage at the kitchen range. Ever since Caroline could remember, the law in the house had been a sort of mystic worship of things distant, intangible, and unattainable. The family had lived in successive ebullitions of generous enthusiasm, in talk of masters and masterpieces, only to come down to the cold facts in the case, to boiled mutton, and to the necessity of turning the dining-room carpet. All these emotional pyrotechnics had ended in petty jealousies, in neglected duties, and in cowardly fear of the little grocer on the corner. From her child she had hated it, that humiliating and uncertain existence, with its glib tongue and empty pockets, its poetic ideals and sordid realities, its indolence and poverty tricked out in paper roses. Even as a little girl, when vague dreams beset her, when she wanted to lie late in bed and commune with visions, or to leap and sing because the sooty little trees along the street were putting out their first pale leaves in the sunshine, she would clench her hands and go to help her mother sponge the spots from her father's waistcoat or press Heinrich's trousers. Her mother never permitted the slightest question concerning anything Auguste or Heinrich saw fit to do, but from the time Caroline could reason at all, she could not help thinking that many things were wrong at home. She knew, for example, that her father's pupils ought not to be kept waiting half an hour while he discussed Schopenhauer with some bearded socialist over a dish of herrings and a spotted tablecloth. She thought that Heinrich ought not to give a dinner on Heine's birthday when the laundress had not been paid for a month and when he frequently had to ask his mother for car fare. Certainly Caroline had served her apprenticeship to idealism and to all the embarrassing inconsistencies which it sometimes entails, and she decided to deny herself this diffuse, ineffectual answer to the sharp questions of life. When she came into the control of herself and the house, she refused to proceed any further with her musical education. Her father, who had intended to make a concert pianist of her, set this down as another item in his long list of disappointments and his grievances against the world. She was young and pretty, and she had worn turned gowns and soiled gloves and improvised hats all her life. She wanted the luxury of being like other people, of being honest from her hat to her boots, of having nothing to hide, not even in the matter of stockings, and she was willing to work for it. She rented a little studio away from that house of misfortune and began to give lessons. She managed well and was the sort of girl people liked to help. The bills were paid, and Auguste went on composing, growing indignant only when she refused to insist that her pupils should study his compositions for the piano. She began to get engagements in New York, to play accompaniments at song recitals. She dressed well, made herself agreeable, and gave herself a chance. She never permitted herself to look further than a step ahead, and set herself with all the strength of her will to see things as they are and meet them squarely in the broad day. There were two things she feared even more than poverty, the part of one that sets up an idol and the part of one that bows down and worships it. When Caroline was twenty-four she married Howard Noble, 
then a widower of forty who had been for ten years of power in Wall Street. Then, for the first time, she had paused to take a breath. It took a substantialness as unquestionable as his, his money, his position, his energy, the big vigor of his robust person, to satisfy her that she was entirely safe. Then she relaxed a little, feeling that there was a barrier to be counted upon between her and that world of visions and quagmires and failure. Caroline had been married for six years when Raymond Descare came to stay with them. He came chiefly because Caroline was what she was, because he too felt occasionally the need of getting out of Klingsor's garden, of dropping down somewhere for a time near a quiet nature, a cool head, a strong hand. The hours he had spent in the garden lodge were hours of such concentrated study as in his fevered life he seldom got in anywhere. She had, as he told Noble, a fine appreciation of the seriousness of work. One evening, two weeks after Descare had sailed, Caroline was in the library giving her husband an account of the work she had laid out for the gardeners. She superintended the care of the grounds herself. Her garden, indeed, had become quite a part of her, a sort of beautiful adjunct, like gowns or jewels. It was a famous spot, and Noble was very proud of it. "'What do you think, Caroline, of having the garden lodge torn down and putting a new summer-house there at the end of the arbor, a big rustic affair where you could have tea served in midsummer?' he asked. "'The lodge?' repeated Caroline, looking at him quickly. "'Why, that seems almost a shame, doesn't it, after Descare has used it?' Noble put down his book with a smile of amusement. "'Are you going to be sentimental about it?' Why, I'd sacrifice the whole place to see that come to pass. But I don't believe you could do it for an hour together. I don't believe so either, said his wife, smiling. Noble took up his book again, and Caroline went into the music room to practice. She was not ready to have the lodge torn down. She had gone there for a quiet hour every day during the two weeks since Descare had left them. It was the sheerest sentiment she had ever permitted herself— she was ashamed of it, but she was childishly unwilling to let it go. Caroline went to bed soon after her husband, but she was not able to sleep. The night was close and warm, presaging storm. The wind had fallen, and the water slept, fixed and motionless as the sand. She rose and thrust her feet into slippers, and putting a dressing-gown over her shoulders, opened the door of her husband's room. He was sleeping soundly. She went into the hall and down the stairs, then, leaving the house through a side door, stepped into the vine-covered arbor that led to the garden lodge. The scent of the June roses was heavy in the still air, and the stones that paved the path felt pleasantly cool through the thin soles of her slippers. Heat-lightning flashed continuously from the bank of clouds that had gathered over the sea, but the shore was flooded with moonlight, and beyond, the rim of the sound lay smooth and shining. Caroline had the key of the lodge, and the door creaked as she opened it. She stepped into the long, low room, radiant with the moonlight which streamed through the bow window and lay in a silvery pool along the waxed floor. Even that part of the room which lay in the shadow was vaguely illuminated. The piano, 
the tall candlesticks, the picture frames and white casts standing out as clearly in the half-light as did the sycamores and black poplars of the garden against the still, expectant night sky. Caroline sat down to think it all over. She had come here to do just that every day of the two weeks since Tesquare's departure, but far from ever having reached a conclusion, she had succeeded only in losing her way in a maze of memories, sometimes bewilderingly confused, sometimes too acutely distinct, where there was neither path nor clue nor any hope of finality. She had, she realized, defeated a lifelong regimen, completely confounded herself by falling unaware and incontinently into that luxury of reverie which, even as a little girl, she had so determinedly denied herself, she had been developing, with alarming celerity, that part of one which sets up an idol, and that part of one which bows down and worships it. It was a mistake, she felt, ever to have asked Descaire to come at all. She had an angry feeling that she had done it rather in self-defiance, to rid herself finally of that instinctive fear of him which had always troubled and perplexed her. She knew that she had reckoned with herself before he came, but she had been equal to so much that she had never really doubted she would be equal to this. She had come to believe, indeed, almost arrogantly, in her own malleability and endurance. She had done so much with herself that she had come to think that there was nothing which she could not do. Like swimmers, overbold, who reckon upon their strength and their power to hoard it, forgetting the ever-changing moods of their adversary, the sea. And Descare was a man to reckon with. Caroline did not deceive herself now upon that score. She admitted it humbly enough, and since she had said good-bye to him she had not been free for a moment from the sense of his formidable power. It formed the undercurrent of her consciousness. Whatever she might be doing or thinking, it went on, involuntarily, like her breathing, sometimes welling up until suddenly she found herself suffocating. There was a moment of this to-night, and Caroline rose and stood, shuddering, looking about her in the blue darkness of the silent room. She had not been here at night before, and the spirit of the place seemed more troubled and insistent than ever it had in the quiet of the afternoons. Caroline brushed her hair back from her damp forehead and went over to the bow window. After raising it, she sat down upon the low seat, leaning her head against the sill and loosening her nightgown at the throat. She half closed her eyes and looked off into the troubled night, watching the play of the heat lightning upon the massing clouds between the pointed tops of the poplars. Yes, she knew, she knew well enough of what absurdities this spell was woven. She mocked even while she winced. His power, she knew, lay not so much in anything that he actually had, though he had so much, or in anything that he actually was, but in what he suggested, in what he seemed picturesque enough to have or be, and that was just anything that one chose to believe or to desire. His appeal was all the more persuasive and alluring in that it was to the imagination alone, in that it was as indefinite and impersonal as those cults of idealism which so have their way with women. What he had was that, in his mere personality, he quickened and in a measure gratified that something without which, to women, life is no better than sawdust, 
and to the desire for which most of their mistakes and tragedies and astonishingly poor bargains are due. Desquerre had become the centre of a movement, and the Metropolitan had become the temple of a cult. When he could be induced to cross the Atlantic, the opera season in New York was successful. When he could not, the management lost money. So much everyone knew. It was understood, too, that his superb art had disproportionately little to do with his peculiar position. Women swayed the balance this way or that. The opera, the orchestra, even his own glorious art, achieved at such cost, were but the accessories of himself. Like the scenery and costumes and even the soprano, they all went to produce atmosphere, were the mere mechanics of the beautiful illusion. Caroline understood all this. Tonight was not the first time that she had put it to herself so. She had seen the same feeling in other people, watched for it in her friends, studied it in the house, night after night, when he sang, candidly putting herself among a thousand others. Descares's arrival in the early winter was the signal for a feminine hegira toward New York. On the nights when he sang, women flocked to the Metropolitan from mansions and hotels, from typewriter desks, schoolrooms, shops, and fitting rooms. They were of all conditions and complexions, women of the world who accepted him knowingly, as they sometimes took champagne for its agreeable effect, sisters of charity and overworked shop-girls who received him devoutly, withered women who had taken doctorate degrees and who worshipped furtively through prism spectacles, business women and women of affairs, the Amazons who dwelt afar from men in the stony fastnesses of apartment houses. They all entered into the same romance, dreamed, in terms as various as the hues of fantasy, the same dream, drew the same quick breath when he stepped upon the stage, and at his exit felt the same dull pain of shouldering the pack again. There were the maimed even, those who came on crutches, who were pitted by smallpox or grotesquely painted by cruel birth-stains. These two entered with him into enchantment. Stout matrons became slender girls again. Worn spinsters felt their cheeks flush with the tenderness of their lost youth. Young and old, however hideous, however fair, they yielded up their heat, whether quick or latent, sat hungering for the mystic bread wherewith he fed them all at this Eucharist of sentiment. Sometimes, when the house was crowded from the orchestra to the last row of the gallery, when the air was charged with this ecstasy of fancy, he himself was the victim of the burning reflection of his power. They acted upon him in return. He felt their fervent and despairing appeal to him. It stirred him as the spring drives the sap up into an old tree. He, too, burst into bloom. For the moment he, too, believed again, desired again, he knew not what, but something. But it was not in these exalted moments that Caroline had learned to fear him most. It was in the quiet, tired reserve, the dullness even, that kept him company between these outbursts that she found that exhausting drain upon her sympathies which was the very pith and substance of their alliance. It was the tacit admission of disappointment under all this glamour of success, the helplessness of the enchanter to at all enchant himself, that woke in her an illogical, womanish desire to, in some way, compensate 
to make it up to him. She had observed drastically to herself that it was her eighteenth year he awoke in her, those hard years she had spent in turning gowns and placating tradesmen, and which she had never had time to live. After all, she reflected, it was better to allow oneself a little youth, to dance a little at the carnival, and to live these things when they are natural and lovely, not to have them coming back on one and demanding arrears when they are humiliating and impossible. She went over tonight all the catalogue of her self-deprivations, recalled how, in the light of her father's example, she had even refused to humour her innocent taste for improvising at the piano, how, when she began to teach after her mother's death, she had struck out one little indulgence after another, reducing her life to a relentless routine, unvarying as clockwork. It seemed to her that, ever since Descare first came into the house, she had been haunted by an imploring little girlish ghost that followed her about, wringing its hands and entreating for an hour of life. The storm had held off unconscionably long. The air within the lodge was stifling, and without the garden waited, breathless. Everything seemed pervaded by a poignant distress, the hush of feverish, intolerable expectation. The still earth, the heavy flowers, even the growing darkness breathed the exhaustion of protracted waiting. Caroline felt that she ought to go, that it was wrong to stay, that the hour and the place were as treacherous as her own reflections. She rose and began to pace the floor, stepping softly as though in fear of awakening someone, her figure in its thin drapery diaphanously vague and white. Still unable to shake off the obsession of the intense stillness, she sat down at the piano and began to run over the first act of the Valkyrie, the last of his roles they had practiced together, playing listlessly and absently at first, but with gradually increasing seriousness. Perhaps it was the still heat of the summer night, perhaps it was the heavy odors from the garden that came in through the open windows, but as she played there grew and grew the feeling that he was there, beside her, standing in his accustomed place. In the duet at the end of the first act she heard him clearly, Thou art the spring, for which I sighed in winter's cold embraces. Once as he sang it, he had put his arm about her, his one hand under her heart, while with the other he took her right from the keyboard, holding her as he always held Sieglinde when he drew her toward the window. She had been wonderfully the mistress of herself at the time, neither repellent nor acquiescent. She remembered that she had rather exulted then in her self-control, which he had seemed to take for granted, though there was perhaps the whisper of a question from a hand under her heart. Thou art the spring for which I sighed in winter's cold embraces. Caroline lifted her hands quickly from the keyboard, and she bowed her head in them, sobbing. The storm broke, and the rain beat in, spattering her nightdress until she rose and lowered the windows. She dropped upon the couch and began fighting over again the battles of other days, while the ghosts of the slain rose as from a sowing of dragon's teeth. The shadows of things, always so scorned and flouted, bore down upon her, merciless and triumphant. It was not enough. This happy, useful, well-ordered life was not enough. 
It did not satisfy. It was not even real. No, the other things, the shadows, they were the realities. Her father, poor Heinrich, even her mother who had been able to sustain her poor romance and keep her little illusions amid the tasks of a scullion were nearer happiness than she. Her sure foundation was but made ground after all, and the people in Klingsor's garden were more fortunate, however barren the sands from which they conjured their paradise. The lodge was still and silent. Her fit of weeping over, Caroline made no sound, and within the room, as without in the garden, was the blackness of storm. Only now and then a flash of lightning showed a woman's slender figure rigid on the couch, her face buried in her hands. Toward morning, when the occasional rumbling of thunder was heard no more, and the beat of the raindrops upon the orchard leaves was steadier, she fell asleep, and did not waken until the first red streaks of dawn shone through the twisted boughs of the apple-trees. There was a moment between world and world, when neither asleep nor awake, she felt her dream grow thin, melting away from her, felt the warmth under her heart growing cold. Something seemed to slip from the clinging hold of her arms, and she groaned protestingly through her parted lips, following it a little way with her fluttering hands. Then her eyes opened wide, and she sprang up and sat dizzily holding to the cushions of the couch, staring down at her bare cold feet, at her laboring breast, rising and falling under her open nightdress. The dream was gone, but the feverish reality of it still pervaded her, and she held it as the vibrating string holds a tone. In the last hour the shadows had had their way with Caroline. They had shown her the nothingness of time and space, of system and discipline, of closed doors and broad waters. Shuddering, she thought of the Arabian fairy tale in which the genie brought the princess of China to the sleeping prince of Damascus and carried her through the air back to her palace at dawn. Caroline closed her eyes and dropped her elbows weakly upon her knees, her shoulders sinking together. The horror was that it had not come from without, but from within. The dream was no blind chance. It was the expression of something she had kept so close a prisoner that she had never seen it herself. It was the wail from the dungeon deeps when the watch slept. Only as the outcome of such a night of sorcery could the thing have been loosed to straighten its limbs and measure itself with her. So heavy were the chains upon it, so many a fathom deep, it was crushed down into darkness. The fact that Descaire happened to be on the other side of the world meant nothing. Had he been here, beside her, it could scarcely have hurt her self-respect so much. As it was, she was without even the extenuation of an outer impulse, and she could scarcely have despised herself more had she come to him here in the night three weeks ago and thrown herself down upon the stone slab at the door there. Caroline rose unsteadily and crept guiltily from the lodge and along the path under the arbor, terrified lest the servants should be stirring, trembling with the chill air, while the wet shrubbery, brushing against her, drenched her nightdress until it clung about her limbs. At breakfast her husband looked across the table at her with concern. 
"'It seems to me that you are looking rather fagged, Caroline. "'It was a beastly night to sleep. "'Why don't you go up to the mountains until this hot weather is over? "'By the way, were you in earnest about letting the lodge stand?' "'Caroline laughed quietly. "'No. "'I find I was not very serious. "'I haven't the sentiment enough to forego a summer-house. "'Will you tell Baker to come to-morrow to talk it over with me? "'If we are to have a house-party, "'I should like to put him to work on it at once.' "'Noble gave her a glance, "'half humorous, half vexed. "'Do you know, I'm rather disappointed,' he said. "'I had almost hoped that, just for once, you know, "'you would be a little bit foolish.' "'Not now that I've slept over it,' replied Caroline, and they both rose from the table, laughing. You've been listening to The Garden Lodge by Willa Cather. Willa Cather, who said, There's nothing so dangerous as sitting still. You've only got one life, one youth, and you can let it slip through your fingers if you want to. Nothing easier. Most people do that. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, and make sure you're registered to vote. All the best. (music) 